You're listening to the Sunday morning message from Clouds Creek Baptist Church. Join us for worship Sunday morning at 11. Or for more information, visit cloudscreek.org. Today we're going to continue in, in Mark chapter 14. Uh, for those of you guys who have your, your Bibles and you want to follow along with us, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 still. Uh, I didn't want to just tell Matt, hey, preach over these, I think it's like 70-something verses. Like, hey, Matt, preach all of these 70 verses in one sermon, and I'll, uh, I'll take over next week. So we split this one up uh, kind of into two <laughs> chapters. So if you felt like the last week Matt ended kind of abruptly, that's because that we split it in half. So if it felt kind of like... What? That's where we're going to stop this week? Okay. Don't worry. We're picking it back up uh, this week. And if you weren't here with us, uh, we, we saw Jesus last week uh, in, in Mark chapter 14 kind of changing up expectations. Um, they, they celebrated the Passover and Jesus changed some things, which kind of, you know, probably surprised the disciples who have done this every year for their entire life. And they're like, wait, this is not, Jesus, I don't know if you've done this before. This is not how we do this, right? Like he starts to change things. And this is really him kind of preparing them for what is coming. And Matt brought up one of my favorite things. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever, has anyone ever participated in a traditional Jewish Passover? Anyone? Okay. We're going to do this. I don't know if we'll have time this year, but we might do it next year because it's incredible to see some of the symbolism. And Matt got into it last week, and I love what he brought up about the afikomen, that it is this, this piece of bread that is broken, pierced, and striped, and then it is buried away and then raised, found again, right? It is this direct example of Jesus. And so we see Jesus kind of showing the disciples, hey, this is what's coming. This is what the Passover is really about. And he's trying to prepare them because it's about to happen. Um, and we pick up with one of Mark's favorite words this week. I don't know if you guys have caught this, but Mark loves the word immediately. If you look back over the book of Mark, so many times he's like, and immediately. Like he wants you to know there was no passage of time. This immediately happened. And we're going to pick back up with that word here is that we left off last week. Jesus is praying in the garden of Gethsemane and the disciples are struggling to stay awake. And by that, I mean, they're asleep. And so he wakes them up and he tells them that the betrayer is coming. And then we pick up in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under, under guard. And when, he came, and when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him and he laid his hands on him and they, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And when it says they all left him and fled, it doesn't mean those trying to arrest him. It means his followers. They, they kind of scatter, which again is something that he says earlier in Mark chapter 14, that that's going to happen. And so uh, we also know from the other gospels that the, the one who cut off the guard's ear here is Peter. In other accounts, it names Peter and it even gets into a little bit more detail. Um, in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus actually heals the man's ear. And so we see this kind of take place. And that's what we're going to 
get into a little bit here is that Jesus is God, right? Jesus is God. And Peter thinks, let me help God. Let, don't worry, God. I've got this. I'll defend you. And I don't, I mean, unless Peter is just like the greatest swordsman of all time, I don't think he was aiming to just cut off his ear, right? Like that would be a weird thing to do. It's just like, I'm gonna get your ear. Like, and I think that it shows that Peter is a fisherman. <laughs> and so his sword skills are a little lackluster, right? Like he wasn't just trying to kind of hurt this guard. This is him trying to start the revolution, defend Jesus. No, you're not going to talk to my Jesus, take my Jesus like that. But how ridiculous is that? That he feels the need of, I've got this, let me defend God, right? It seems ridiculous. If, if a nine-year-old came up to me and just started talking trash, I don't need my three-and-a-half-year-old to just come and punch him in the face. It's like, don't worry, I've got this. Like, if, if things got a hand with this nine-year-old, I could handle it, right? Like, I don't need you, toddler, to come up and defend me. But I think that's kind of what it looks like here, is that God is standing there, and Peter's like, don't worry, I got this. And I think sometimes we do this too. I think sometimes when we see someone making fun of God or saying something bad about God, he doesn't need us to defend him because he's God. He's got it covered if he wants. If you haven't watched the series, The Chosen, I highly recommend it. It is an incredible kind of uh, depiction, film representation of Jesus and the disciples. If you want to borrow it, we've got it in the church library. You can see Wanda and you can check it out if nobody has it right now. Um, but it's very incredible. Last, uh, last episode, no spoilers, but it's all in the Bible. So like, are there really spoilers? Um, Last episode, Jesus is going to meet with the woman by the well, and he, he tells them, he's like, hey, you guys go ahead. I'm going to go over here. And one of his disciples is like, are you sure you're going to be okay? Do you, need us, do you need us to stay with you? And I just laugh because Jesus is like, I've got it. Don't worry. And it's like, right, because it's God, right? Like, it's like, do you need anybody? You sure? This is, we're, this is Samaritan territory. Like, are you sure that you are okay by yourself? And Jesus is like, yeah. Don't worry, I got it. And I love that depiction because I think that's sometimes what he thinks about us is are we too focused on defending God? Because he doesn't need it. He's got it covered. In Matthew, Jesus' response to cutting off the guard's ear, he says, uh, it says, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its, into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and at once he will send more angels, more than 12 legions of angels? See, Jesus doesn't want you to defend him. He wants you to represent him. He doesn't want you to defend him. He wants you to represent him. He wants you to live and love like he did. He didn't aim to hurt people in order to protect himself. He allowed himself to be hurt to protect others. If Jesus was more concerned about loving and taking care of others than defending even himself, then we should also be more concerned about loving and taking care of others than defend, coming to his defense. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 18, it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave who? Us. The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to who? Us. The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through who? Us. You have the ministry of reconciliation. Then again, the message of reconciliation. Then again, you are the ambassadors of Christ. We're not given the ministry of defense. We're not give, we are given the ministry of reconciliation, of ambassadorship. We, as ambassadors, we are acting on the behalf of God to those around us. I told you guys before, when I was growing up, I did not like UGA football. I have been redeemed. It's okay. Don't, you don't have to gasp or anything. I'm, it's okay. And I'll tell you, the reason that I was that way is not because of anything that the players did or anything that the coaches did. It was because when I was growing up, I lived around some obnoxious Georgia fans. Some really, and some of you guys are like, that's right. Like, no, that's not, no. Mm -mm. So those obnoxious fans who represented the team, the team didn't do anything to make me dislike them. It was the fans. It was the people that represented the team to me that turned me against them. That it was like, I don't want anything to do with this, right? You are the closest thing to Jesus that a lot of people in your life will see. We should live that way. That I am the closest thing to Jesus that anybody else is going to see. That's, that's a sobering thought, right? It's a sobering thought to think about how heavy your ambassadorship, the ministry that you have been entrusted with, it's not something that we should take lightly. It's not something that we should get confused with coming to the defense of God, but instead coming to the defense of others, loving the people, sharing his love, sharing and living how he lived with the people around us. We shouldn't be arguing about whether or not there is proof of God or trying to convince someone of, of the morals they should or shouldn't have. We should be proving to them that God is real through how we live our lives. We should be representing him so well that there is no doubt that we have been radically changed by a very real, very active, very loving God. Our lives should serve as evidence. You shouldn't have to say, well, if you look at history and if you look at this scientific evidence, those are not arguments that are going to win people. But if you say, look at my life, look at how I live, that should be the evidence of a very real, very active, and very loving God. While Peter's goal was to protect Jesus... Jesus' goal was to live in obedience to the Father through sacrifice. Sacrifice is greater than defense. Let's continue in, in verse 51. 
And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This seems very out of place. This is what most theologians believe is John Mark, the author of Mark, kind of explaining, hey, I was there for this. I was an eyewitness. Because we don't talk more about this, and then it just keeps on going with the story. <laughs> it says, and they led Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And a high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. I love the point that Matt brought up last week, that these are men who were seeking to do something. They were seeking to arrest Jesus and charge him, but Scripture never tells us that they sought the Lord about it, right? It never says that they really truly prayed and sought after if the Lord wanted them to do this. It's something that they just kind of did, something that they wanted to do. And let me remind you that these are not evil men. When we read this, this account, it looks like these are evil men, right? These are the bad guys. In our, in our like storytelling world, we see these guys as the bad guys. But that's not who they were. These are guys who knew what the law and the prophet said better than any of you in this room, any of us, myself included, better than any of us know scripture. They knew what it said. These were men who knew God. They knew a lot about God and about what he said. They were not opposing God. That was not their goal. They were trying their best to serve him. And that's why they get so angry. If we put ourselves in their shoes for a second, these are the guys who are trying their best to serve God. And all of a sudden, this homeless guy starts telling people, hey, I'm the son of God, follow me. And all of a sudden, people are listening to this thing that is counter to the truth, or so we think. And so they're starting to listen and follow this guy, and they're like, this is not good. This is someone who is leading our people astray, right? It's a very noble thought in, in, in their true reasons for their actions. They were not just malicious men. These are men trying to say, look, what you're doing is not right, and we have to stop it. And all of a sudden, things are starting to get out of hand. He's gaining these followers, and they're like, we've got to stop this blasphemous man who claims to be God. Pick, pick any person in, in pop culture today. If they started claiming they were God, you would get upset about it, right? Right? 
Yeah. That's what's happening here. Is they're like, this can't be right. And they were furious. So they're trying to do something to stop it. But again, were they actually seeking God or just kind of what they thought he wanted? Kind of what they thought he might want. We have to seek God's desires above our own. One thing that Maddie and I have worked on in our marriage and that a lot of you who are married, you know the importance of communication, right? Yes, men, you should be nodding very hardly just to win a couple points, I guess. And in, in relationships, I'm not going to throw any kind of anyone under the bus um, to, to save all of us, um, just not going to throw anyone under the bus. But sometimes in a relationship, there's one side of the relationship who expects you to read their mind and expects that you know exactly what he or she may want and that you are going to do that thing exactly the way that they want you to do it. Anybody else experience this? No, nobody. All the men are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is new information to me. Again, not that this is anyone in particular who does this. But I think sometimes we see serving God in that same way, that we think, I don't know what God wants. I think that he just, I'm just going to kind of guess and hope that I'm right. And that's not how it works. Praise the Lord. God doesn't just expect you to, to kind of figure it out, right? He doesn't expect you to just guess what he wants you to do. That's not the way it works. He wrote you 66 books. He wrote to you to tell you about who he is, what he wants, his desires, how we should live our lives. So there should be very little question about how we live our lives. And then furthermore, you have the spirit of God living inside of you. If you are saved, if you are a believer and have given your life to Jesus, the same spirit that hovers over the waters before creation starts, that same spirit lives inside of you. We don't have to play spiritual pin the tail on the donkey, right? I think that's what we do sometimes is that we live our lives going, okay, I'm just going to hope that I'm going to get this right and then I'm going to nail this and that I'm not going to figure out until I die and the blindfold gets taken off and it's like, well, did I do it? That's not how you have to live. That's not how we have to live. And it seems like that's what the Pharisees and the religious leaders are doing at this point. It's like, I know where I'm supposed to go, but I'm not paying attention to how I'm going to get there. I know what God wants. I know what God desires, but I'm not actually looking at the things around me. We don't have to live that way. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God will show you where to go. If we're not spending time in the word, if we're not using the lamp, how can we expect to walk on the right path? That's what's amazing about this scene that we just saw is that these are men who know Scripture. When I say that, I mean that verse that I just read from Psalms, they could have recited the entire book to you. They could have recited the entire Old Testament to you, but they weren't using it. If they had been using Scripture, they would have seen the prophecies being fulfilled in the man who stood before them. 
But instead, they used false witnesses and false testimonies to try to drum up these charges against him. Again, not because they sought the Lord and had reason, but because of what they wanted in their own hearts. And this verse that we just read in Psalms, it shows us two things, that we can't just leave the light and try to figure out the path on our own, because then we don't know where we're going, right? We stumble and fall and maybe run into a tree, like depending on how dark it is, right? And so you can't just leave the light behind, but you also just can't stare at the lamp and not look at where you're going. You can't just stare the lamp and know exactly every detail of the lamp. We have to use it to walk on the path that we're supposed to go on. We have to know his word and use it to guide our steps. That's how we actively seek the Lord's will. And we don't just guess at what we think he might like. When we get to this last section, we see Jesus' prophecy fulfilled like a quick turnaround for this prophecy because this prophecy takes place earlier in verse 30 of chapter 14. He tells Peter exactly what's going to happen. And we pick up here starting in verse 66 and it says, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither knew nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say again to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, the, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he moved to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. I think it's easy to be bold here on Sunday mornings, right? It's comfortable. We know that everybody else is in agreement with us. This is kind of our, our safe haven, our sanctuary, if you will, Right? When everything's safe and things are going well, we're quick to talk about how good God is. But in Peter's position, this isn't just things not going well. This is his entire faith has been shaken. Because this is the guy who he thought was going to free them as the Israelites, that he was going to overthrow Rome, that he is going to lead them into this great nation. And all of a sudden, he's under arrest and things are not going well. So the whole plan he thinks is out the window. He's alone. So he goes into self-preservation mode. He's not, he's just like, I'm not trying to get arrested. Let me protect myself. So he starts to deny Jesus because of his situation. So where are you this morning? Sometimes I think that our faith isn't as strong because it feels like God abandoned us. I really think that Peter was doubting so much of what he saw over the last three years. And he's like, was this all fake? Was none of this real? 
He's really starting to doubt everything he saw with his own eyes and heard Jesus say. Is this really over? And then he realizes that what Jesus said came true when he hears that rooster crow. And I think that's when it hits him. I think that's why he breaks down in tears is because he realizes that it all was true and that he was doubting that Jesus knew this would happen and that he failed this test. That when he thought that Jesus abandoned him, he abandoned Jesus. I want to jump back and look at something that we read in Mark 8, which has been several weeks ago at this point. But I want to look at some parallels of Jesus talking to Peter again here in Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes to be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. There goes Peter defending Jesus again. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd with him, crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, we have Peter and Jesus here. That Jesus is trying to explain, this is what's coming. And Peter, trying to rebuke Jesus when he claims that he would be killed. The same Peter who tries to cut off the guard, or, well, he did cut off the guard's ear. He probably wasn't trying to, as we said earlier, right? The same Peter who swings his sword at the guard when Jesus is arrested. And then immediately after rebuking Peter here in this passage, he, start, he turns to the crowd and starts to talk to them about denying himself. Deny yourself. He says, this is what's going to happen. Peter, calm down. Deny yourself. Do you see the parallels between what happened in chapter 8 and then what actually happened in chapter 14? It's almost as if he were speaking directly to Peter about what was coming. Hey, I'm going to be arrested and killed. And when it happens, don't abandon me because I haven't abandoned you. But Peter does not deny himself. He tries to save himself. He follows, he follow, he's following the desires of his flesh and denying Jesus. If you aren't denying yourself, you are denying Jesus. That's a hard truth to swallow. If you aren't denying yourself, you are denying Jesus. Jesus, we cannot follow both our flesh and Jesus. We have to deny one of them. And to follow one is to deny the other one. And this isn't just denial for the sake of denial, right? This isn't just, oh, I'm not going to eat this cookie because I know I shouldn't, right? Like this is desire with a purpose. This is desire with a promise, we deny ourselves to follow Jesus because he will not deny us in eternity. Amen? What is it to profit the whole world and lose your soul? What good is it to have everything you could ever want at the cost of eternity? 
What looks like it could be Jesus' warning to Peter in, in Mark 8 is a high temporary cost for an immeasurable eternal gain. Taking up your cross is a death sentence. If you want to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to volunteer for death row. If you want to follow me, step into death row. You have to be willing to sacrifice everything. That's why the rich young ruler, he couldn't even sacrifice his, his stuff, his comforts, his own goods. And I think Jesus, his, his response of saying, you have to be willing to do that because if you're not willing to give up your comfort, your, your, your material goods, what's it going to be like if, if you have to deny your life? right? If you have to be willing to lay down your life, if you can't even give up your stuff, how on earth would you be able to give up your own life? There are a lot of us in this room who would do what Peter did early in chapter 14, where he says, listen, I've gotten it. Jesus says, look, people are going to deny me. You guys are going to leave me. And Peter's like, not me. I will follow you to death. He sounds like someone who really understood and got the warning in Mark 8. He's like, no, I get it. I get it. I'm not going to leave you. I will not sell my soul to gain the world. I'm not going to leave you. But when the storm came, when he was really under the fire of it, when his back was against the wall, and he didn't see Jesus standing with him, he lost his boldness. He didn't deny himself, but he denied Jesus. It takes us back to this first point today, that Peter was seemingly the most vocal and most defensive of all the disciples, but when you're focused on defending, you'll just defend yourself when it comes down to it. When we aren't living like Jesus we aren't living like Jesus until we take up our cross, deny our flesh, and that desire to put someone in their place when they talk about God, and instead to love and to live like him and to truly follow him and forsake all that this world has to offer, knowing that our reward will be more incredible than we could ever imagine. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray that we would realize that you don't need us to defend you, but that you have called us to represent you. You have given us the ministry of reconciliation, that you have made us ambassadors for you. Let us live like we are the only version of you that people will see, to show them the evidence of God through how we live our lives, not through well-structured arguments, but through well-reconstructed hearts. Let us deny our flesh because then when, when push comes to shove, we won't deny you because we've been following and clinging to you. And even when it looks like you have left, we can remember that you said, I will stand before the Father. 
and I will claim you. We thank you for that truth. We thank you for salvation. God, let us live as your ambassadors to the people who we come in contact with every day. It's your name we pray. Amen.